Hey, party people, welcome to the Patrama Party, where we throw confetti and then find it in our clothes for the next 5,000 years. So grab your sparkly cardigan and your fake eyelashes, and let's get into it. I'm your host, Remy Ramirez, and this week we're talking about dating trauma. There are so many offshoots to this, more than we could possibly get into in one episode, but specifically today, we're going to talk about ghosting and also the trauma of being single for a long time, because I had listeners write in asking for both these topics, and in a way, they cover similar ground because they're both about lack, right? The, the absence, the notness of the thing, right? It's like, I want a date. I want intimacy. I want connection. And here's me not getting those things in these different ways. It's really fucking painful, honestly. So to help us get clarity on this subject, I'm so happy to welcome somatic psychotherapist and business coach, Felicia Keller Boyle to the show. Hi, Felicia. Welcome. Hi, thanks so much for having me here. Oh, I'm so happy to have you on. And to get us started, let's chat about your astrology. Great. You have a Virgo sun, Libra moon, Gemini rising, which is so fun because I also have a Libra moon and Gem rising. So I know all kinds of things about this. Mm. But that Virgo moon, it's interesting. I've seen Virgo show up in the charts of lots of my guests on here. And I think that makes a lot of sense because Virgo is all about acts of service and about health, which includes mental health. So you're perfectly aligned with your line of work. Gemini, of course, is great for therapists too, because Gemini loves communication and coaches. Gemini loves communication. That's a huge part of the work that you do, thinking about communication and communicating and then that Libra moon also loves to communicate. But one thing about Libra is that it oversees the seventh house, which is the house of partnerships. Libra loves to partner up. It loves one-on-one -on -one relationships, which actually does include therapy or coaching because that is a one-on-one -on -one relationship for sure. I actually have a question for you from one Libra moon gem rising to another and maybe this doesn't resonate as much for you because you're a Virgo sun and Virgo can can be more introverted and I'm a Sag, which is like not introverted. But for me, I'm so I'm so super extroverted. I feel way better when I'm around people than when I'm alone. But with my Libra moon, the way my version of extroverted works is I really thrive when I'm making one on one connections out in the world. I'm OK in a group, but it's when there's like one person for me to connect with outside of my, you know, house, <laughs> I feel much more in my element versus being in a huge group. And even when I'm in a, a big group, I'll often find myself trying to kind of like partner off with someone. Does that resonate for you? Do you, do you thrive in these sort of like one-on-one -on -one dynamics? Yeah, for sure. I do. I would say that was even more pronounced when I was younger, like exactly what you said about being in large groups and then like looking for the person who I'm basically going to spend the rest of my time with. Yeah, That's very, very typical with, with me. I would say like over time I've gotten better in groups. And I, as, as I was like moving toward like prior to the pandemic, I was like, 
really growing in that area and really thriving in groups and having a lot of fun. And I do feel like the pandemic has kind of set me back a little bit. Totally. It was really hitting my stride. So um, I do really enjoy being around groups. And I remember uh, being around friends in grad school and like someone kind of offhandedly saying, oh, Felicia, she can she can start a conversation with anybody. She can talk to anyone. You like put her down, plop her down in an environment and she'll be next thing you know, she's going to be in some conversation with somebody. And that was really interesting to hear because at least when I was younger, I was very anxious socially. And so it's so funny to hear someone that that was how I was perceived. And I realized after after I heard that, I'm like, oh, that's actually very true. So I do do great in those one-on-one conversations. And you're absolutely right. That is something that makes me very well suited for psychotherapy, for having those really intense, connected, deep, uh, thoughtful conversations <laughs> with just like one other person. I find it really fascinating. Yes. Oh my God. I relate to everything you're saying so hard. It's so nice to to feel validated in that because it's something that has been like such a huge part of my story is everyone I'm like I'm like at you know the fucking club and I just want to like sit down with someone and hear about their deepest darkest secrets (laughs) I mean I'll be honest like that has started to change over the years I think like I I've had so many one-on-one conversations that are about people's deepest darkest secrets that like I don't I don't know that I like am as inclined to that these days as I used to be, but that was 100%. And I think it's just because I've had, like, I'm a bit oversaturated with those. Totally. Um, I have like enough for multiple lifetimes, but certainly when I was younger, I was like, why does this always happen? Like, I feel like I'm always ending up like the way I would have put it is like, I'm in bummer conversations. Like everyone's having a good time. And then like, yeah. suddenly someone looks over at me and whoever I'm sitting with and they're like a puddle of tears and I'm like hugging them. And it's like, right how did this happen again? Like, why can't I small talk? Why can't I just like shoot the shit? I'm always like, what happened in your childhood? What are you (laughs) upset about? And it's like, sometimes I'm not even actually even asking those questions. It's just like the person is like, I somehow feel compelled to tell you all of these things. And I'm like, well, I'm really interested in that. So here we are again. Well, I hate to disappoint you, girl, but that is exactly what you signed up for today. So Speaking of huge bummers, I'm going to dive into my experience on this topic. While I do that, feel free to jump in with thoughts, opinions, tarot readings, you know, or you can you can just hang out, eat gummy bears, you know, do a word search. Either way, at the end, I'll turn some questions over to you. How does that sound? That sounds great. Okay, sweet. Here we go. So back when I was living in L.A., I met this guy on Tinder and we met for dinner and I could not believe how kind and cool and attractive he was. He was this sculptor who had just moved out from Kansas. He was really thoughtful and sweet and artistic and laid back. And I just really liked him. We had a ton in common. We had both lived overseas. We both loved the desert. It was it was kind of a love at first date thing. And we immediately were hanging out a few times a week. I would sleep over at his house. And when I would wake up, my favorite tea would be ready for me on the nightstand. He would be making me breakfast. We played board games, which was just like cute, you know, and we would take night walks. We had movie nights. It was just so sweet and good that I remember telling myself, don't close yourself off because you've been hurt before. This is a really good guy. Like, don't shut down. So 
we'd been dating almost three months and we had a date planned for a Thursday night. We were going to see a show at the Echo. I don't know why I remember it was a Thursday night. This is how traumatizing it was. But I woke up that morning, the morning of the date with a fever blister. And I was so bummed. I felt super self-conscious about it, which I mean, everyone gets cold sores, so it's really not a big deal. But when I was in high school, this guy who I'd been good friends with, who secretly had a crush on me, got jealous when I started dating this other dude. And he told that dude, you need to be careful with Remy because she has herpes, which that's a whole other episode. But PSA for anyone who doesn't know, Yes, cold sores are the herpes virus. And yes, you can give someone genital herpes if you go down on them while you have a cold sore. That's totally an aside, but I feel like it's important to like put that out there. But anyway, this guy basically tried to dissuade my new boyfriend from dating me by telling him that I had herpes because I would get cold sores sometimes. And even though this other story I'm telling you happened like 15 years after high school, I still carried that shame and felt like, oof, this is not a sexy look and I don't want him to feel weird about it. So our plan was to meet at the Echo at eight. The Echo is a club if you're not familiar with LA. We were texting at like two that afternoon, making a plan. At four, I text him and say, hey, I'm really excited for tonight. Also, I woke up with a fever blister, so I can't kiss you. They're contagious and I wouldn't want to give you a cold sore, but I'm stoked to dance and hang out. And he didn't respond to that. I figured he was just busy. I was at work, so I had a bunch of stuff on my plate. I went home, got ready, drove over to the Echo, and I waited. If you're familiar with that venue, then you know there's the Echo, and then around the corner, there's the Echo Plex. Like I said, he had recently moved there from Kansas. So I was waiting outside the Echo for like 15 minutes. And then I was like, oh, maybe he got confused and went to the Echoplex. So I walked over to the Echoplex, not there. I texted him. I walked back to the Echo. I waited. It's now 8.30. I texted again. Nothing. I called. No answer. I walked back to the Echoplex. I walked back to the Echo. I'm texting. I'm calling. And finally, I say in my text, I'm worried that something has happened to you. Can you just let me know that you're okay? No response. I call again and leave a message. I say, I'm worried that I haven't heard anything. Can you please call me back? I think I texted like maybe four times. I think I called twice. Finally, like over an hour later, as I'm just standing there on a street corner, I realize I've been stood up. I've been ghosted. I walk back to my car and call my sister sobbing. I mean, I was sobbing so hard, she couldn't understand anything I was saying. And part of that for me was that I had had to really work to stay open and emotionally available with this guy. I'd had to talk myself into being open because by that point, I'd already experienced so much heartache with men that I just wanted to get into my little shell and never come out. But this guy was consistent. He was thoughtful. He was kind. The sex was good. So I was truly blindsided by this. And more importantly, I was re-wounded. It can feel like such an enormous blow when something like that happens when you're dating because many of us aren't coming into dating scenarios with a clean slate, right? Like, We've fucking been through it already. So we're out there doing our best to stay vulnerable and take a risk. And then some dickwad comes along and pulls some bullshit. 
And maybe for someone else who didn't have adult trauma on top of childhood trauma, they could be like, well, that's just a reflection of that person and where they are in their life. I really dodged a bullet, which by the way, is true, (laughs) right? Like that's true. But for those of us who have gotten the messaging over and over again in our lives that we aren't wanted, we aren't important, we're disposable, getting ghosted reinforces all of those beliefs and it brings you to such a dark place. It's like getting punched in a festering wound. Plus, I was already so self-conscious about the fever blister. And then he was literally like, oh, you have a cold sore? Uh, goodbye. Or anyway, that's what it felt like. I guess I'll never really know why he ghosted me that night. So yeah, I was sobbing, like from my goddamn solar plexus, trying to tell my sister what had happened. She could not understand a word I was saying. I finally calmed down enough to talk to her. And she said maybe he'd broken his phone somehow. Maybe there'd been some kind of emergency and that it would all get resolved tomorrow. So I drove home. I went to bed and I thought, okay, when I wake up, there's going to be a text from him explaining this. But of course, there was not a text. (laughs) There was not a call. There was nothing. So I did what any anxiously attached gal would do. I drove to his house before I went to work because as it happens, he lived like five minutes away from me. And when I got there, the front door was unlocked. So I I knocked, no one answered. I let myself in and I walked to his bedroom door, which had a glass inset in it that he'd like covered with a little tapestry. But the, but the thing was that tapestry didn't reach the bottom of the glass. There was like a couple inches at the bottom that you could see through. So I crouched down and peered in and I saw him in bed scrolling on his phone, which was by all appearances working just fine. So I threw open his door, you know, much to his shock. (laughs) And he said, what are you doing here? And I said, what are you doing here? You left me standing on a street corner late at night and let me think that something terrible might have happened to you. Anyway, he tried to give me some excuse about how he got scared because he has feelings, which I I genuinely think was a lie, although I don't know. And I just said, well, what you did was mean, period. And then I turned on my heel and walked out because I could just feel the tears coming and I didn't want to cry in front of him. And that was the end of that. We never talked again until I ran into him years later when he was bartending (laughs) and he hooked me up with a bunch of drinks and then I left him a shitty tip. So let me talk about this a little. When you're anxiously attached, you grew up feeling like love is unpredictable. One minute your caregiver loves you and nurtures you and gives you what you need. And the next minute you're annoying, you're being screamed at, they wish you were never born or whatever it looks like, right? It can look a lot of different ways. When we get ghosted and we're anxiously attached, it's kind of a repeat of that experience. Things are going great. You like me. I like you. And then out of nowhere, you mean nothing to me. I could care less. I can't even bother to take the time to let you know that I'm choosing to part ways. That's how disposable you are to me. For securely attached people, I think it's a lot easier to say, wow, yeah, this doesn't feel good. This is upsetting. But damn, like, I'm I'm glad I didn't waste even more time on that person or on that relationship, right? But when you're anxiously attached, and maybe even when you have disorganized attachment style, being ghosted is all of that childhood pain right back in your face. All of the, the beliefs that you created to make sense of your crazy home, 
I don't matter. I don't get to have love. I can't trust love. All that stuff comes rushing back in like someone just opened a dam. So it's really hard not to take it personally because it mimics something that was incredibly personal for you. It feels the same. When we think about healing dating trauma and what we're often really talking about is healing childhood trauma. If I'm totally secure in the belief that I matter, I'm important, I'm a fucking catch, I deserve love, I deserve devotion and communication and honesty, and I believe that those things are easy for me to get, then someone ghosting me would make me be like, oh, wow, like that person isn't the awesome person I thought they were, or they're just not in a place in their life right now where they can give me what I need. Now I get to move on and find someone who's on board. It might still sting a little. I'm sure it stings a lot, but it won't make you, you know, sob so hard. Your sister can't understand what the fuck you're saying on the phone. For me, when this happened with Duder, the belief that I was disposable, that other people get to have love, but I don't, which were core beliefs that I created in childhood, right? Also, you know, that there's something wrong with me that makes people not want me. All of that came flooding in. But I didn't know that in that moment. I associated all that pain with him specifically because I was not in therapy at the time and I didn't, you know, really know what was going on with me. But that huge reaction, it wasn't really about him. It was about me and the beliefs that I was carrying that were so painful that were apparently being sort of substantiated by by this experience. That said... And I want to I want to make sure this is clear for anyone who's securely attached or or wasn't traumatized as a kid. It will never feel awesome to be ghosted, not for any of us, especially when we really liked that person. But if you're carrying old wounded beliefs from childhood, I think we have to be really mindful of those when we date and be able to differentiate those from the person we're dating. Did I like this guy? Yeah, he seemed like an awesome dude. But the super intense emotional reaction I had wasn't about him. It was about my baggage, which was packed, honey. You know, your girl had those bags packed coming into the situation. And now after years of therapy, I've given up the goal of like, oh, I have to heal all my childhood wounds before I'm dateable. That's just not feasible for me. And it makes me feel so other. Like I'm this fucked up walking wound and everyone else has a perfectly clean bill of mental health. That's just not true. We're all working on things. I put in a ton of work on my mental health. I'm never going to completely get rid of some of these wounds. And I'm still awesome and totally worthy of love and romance and sex and partnership. The difference between where I am now and where I was before I started therapy is not that I made all my wounds disappear. The difference is that I'm aware of them now. And I can be like, oh, fuck, I'm so triggered. This situation is bringing up so much stuff from when I was four, when I was seven, when I was 12, and I need to take all of that to my therapist ASAP. I also have different tools now than I did then. I can take deep breaths. I can check in with what I need. I can look at my thinking and go, ah, yes, there's that distorted thought. That's the trauma talking. That's not reality. It's not true that I don't get to have love. It's not true that I'm disposable. 
it's not true that having a fever blister is a good reason for a dude to blow up a really great connection. And that shift has been really big for me. Being able to locate those thoughts and be like, yeah, no, that's truly not what's up anymore. That helps me feel safer in dating. Speaking of shift, let's talk about being single in perpetuity. (laughs) Part two of this discussion. I have not had an official boyfriend in, uh, let me think here, 25 years. It's been 25 fucking years. I have dated and I've even dated semi-seriously. I've also dated monogamously, but having a person where it was like, oh, let me introduce you to my boyfriend. No, not since high school. It's kind of wild that we're doing this episode just after Valentine's Day. I did not plan that. But Valentine's Day every year is a complete shit show for me. I'm a fucking mess on Valentine's Day. Every year, I try to come up with something to distract me from the fact that, yet again, I am single on Valentine's Day. A few years ago, I was cat sitting in a town where I didn't know anyone. So I basically was going to be alone, i.e. without friends on Valentine's Day, because normally friends are how I like fill that space. So I decided that I would post on my Insta story and be like, respond to this and I'll tell you all the things I love about you. And I was like, this is an awesome idea. Who doesn't want to hear all about how loved they are? I'll get so many responses and that will keep me from spending the whole day crying. Well, literally not one single person responded and I ended up having a panic attack. I drove to a dispensary bought a bunch of weed gummies, got high before I even left the parking lot, and then drove straight to Whole Foods and bought more chocolate than I could carry in two hands because A, I self-medicate with chocolate, and B, I was high as fuck by that time and was like, yeah, a shelf's worth of chocolate seems like a solid decision right now. I could eat my weight in sweets. So anyway, that's just a little background on my relationship to being single for a thousand years. The person who wrote in to ask me about this was like, I feel a lot of shame around being single for so long. I super related to that, but it's a little tricky for me. I don't feel ashamed that I'm not in a relationship. I'm not like I'm shitty or meaningless because I'm single, right? Like the the whole thing around like people your age are supposed to be in relationships. What's wrong with you? I don't feel that shame, but I've definitely had moments of feeling like, There's something wrong with me, something about who I am on the inside that prevents men from wanting to be with me. I happen to be heterosexual. And that thing shifts depending on what thought is going through my head in any given moment. I've had thoughts like men don't want me because I'm too emotional and being emotional becomes the thing that makes me ashamed. Other times it's been like, Men don't want me because I'm not modest enough. I'm not quote unquote marriage material. Then other times it's like, it's because I'm not flirtatious enough. It's too hard for me to be vulnerable enough to flirt with guys. So they don't want me. Then I'll catch myself finding something that's wrong with me, right? Like in my head being like, oh, you're not flirtatious enough or whatever. And then I switch the narrative to, oh, men don't want me because I don't love myself. I'm so critical of myself, which is the biggest mindfuck of them all, because I mean, talk about kicking someone while they're down. 
you're already fucked up in the head around being single. And then you say, it's your fault you're single because you don't have enough self-esteem, you idiot. <laughs> oh, it's just like nothing like shaming yourself for feeling bad about yourself so that you feel even worse about yourself. Jesus Christ. The bottom line is I would always find a way to put myself down around being single. If one reason didn't make sense in the moment, I'd come up with another one. Like, oh, I get cold sores. <laughs> that's why. That's why no one wants me. And ultimately, none of them are true. But most importantly, what they all sort of represent is that there's this program running inside me that will show up in all kinds of situations. But one of the ones it really loves is the, oh God, I'm so sad that I'm single situation. Because when that heartbreak surfaces for me, I go into despair. That's my go-to. Despair is familiar. It's comfortable. It's much safer than optimism because when you're optimistic, hopes can be dashed. So if I'm in despair, everything's just fucked and that's all there is to it. So as bad as it sucks, at least I won't have to feel the crushing agony of expecting something good and getting, you know, like a poop shower instead, right? So anyway, I go to despair and then the little program is like, oh, fuck yeah, she's weak. Her defenses are down. It is go time, baby. And it shows up and it's like, see this despair you're feeling? That's why no one wants you. Why would anyone want to deal with all your crying? Or it goes, remember how you wore that shirt, that short skirt or whatever, you know? Yeah. Guys want to have sex with you, but they don't want to love you. They think you're trashy or whatever story it comes up with in the moment. Recently, as in <laughs> this last Valentine's Day, I was so exhausted emotionally from the from the whole like, you know, here's a day exclusively made for people who are romantically involved with each other. And that's not you thing. And I found myself saying you're not allowed to not get work done just because you spent an hour sobbing this morning. Like you have to get it together, get on top of it. And I was like, why do I do that? What's this program that jumps in when I'm so fragile and starts tearing me down in whatever way it can, you know, like what, why does it come up so much for me around being single? And then I had this memory. I was 16 and my boyfriend, who I really liked, broke up with me unexpectedly. I was totally shocked and, of course, really sad about it. I was a junior in high school and my sister had already graduated, but she was living close by. She'd gotten an apartment in Hollywood. So I called her crying and told her what had happened. And she said, skip first period tomorrow. I'll take you to breakfast and we can talk about it. And I was like, yes, sounds great. We're doing that. Let me also say... I was a really good student. Part of my like childhood coping mechanism was overachieving. So I had straight A's. I never missed school. I was like in all of these extracurricular activities, but I was really sad about this breakup and needed to talk about it with someone. So I skipped first period to have breakfast with my sister. And when my mom found out about it, she got really mad and told me, if you can't emotionally handle dating, then you're not allowed to date which was really in line with how my mom showed up with us emotionally across the board. She was allowed to have all kinds of huge, chaotic emotional reactions to things, but we weren't really allowed to have emotions. And that realization, this, this memory recall that I had recently sort of helped me put into perspective 
why I get so mean with myself, why I go into these shame conversations when I get emotional about dating or (laughs) more specifically the lack of dating. And I think for a lot of us who didn't have parents who could give us what we needed emotionally and who maybe were critical of our emotions when we were growing up, that shaming voice can really rear its head when we're struggling with being single. It's like my therapist recently asked me when I was telling her about a negative belief I had about life. She was like, is that your belief or is that your mom's? And I was like, whoa, so true. My mom used to say that exact thing when I was growing up. And now it's a belief that I carry. I was doing the same thing with the dating stuff. My mom being like, you can't handle dating. That really stuck with me because underneath that was there's something wrong with you. If you have a feeling about dating that you can't push away. And let's be honest. The one thing I'm terrible at is pushing away my feelings. So every time I had a big, sad feeling come up around dating, That little program from my mom would pop up and criticize me like you're too emotional. So no one wants you. You're too free spirited. You're you're not flirtatious enough. No one will ever want you. Right. Like it's a shape shifter. It'll take on any critical messaging that will affect me in the moment, however full of shit it is in order to accomplish its goal, which is to make me feel like I'm somehow wrong when it comes to dating. Of course, I don't think that that was what my mom intended when she planted that seed all those years ago. I think she didn't have the emotional capacity to be compassionate with me. And she was afraid that I wouldn't do well in school. And so she just went into this knee jerk criticizing thing. So it's not about resenting my mom. It's about recognizing where that program came from and doing my best to sort of deactivate it when I see it pop up. There's nothing wrong with me. I carry wounds like we all do. I get emotional. I'm working on myself and I'm very dateable. But of course, the other shame piece around being single is the belief that no one wants you. It's that rejection shame. By the way, I have a whole episode on shame if that's something that comes up for you a lot in your mental health journey. And I also have an episode on feeling unwanted, which applies here too, of course. But rejection shame is so fucking sad, dude. When I saw my therapist last week, I was a total mess about Valentine's Day. And I was like, I'm very clear that there is a hole in my heart where my dad's love should have gone. And so much of this pain that comes up around being single is the excruciating pain of feeling like my dad didn't want me. I mean, I'm going to I'm going to say this because I. I think it's true. And I, and I'm really working on like not having delusional thinking or rose colored glasses. My dad didn't want me. And it's, it's so hard to say that. And it's, and it's true. And it's not because there was something wrong with me. It's because my dad is a, is a very shut down. Um, uh, what do I want to say? A very shut down, emotionally unavailable person. I think he wanted kids in theory, like to kind of um, continue the family line, but actually being a father, he didn't want that, right? Like the thought, the the being a dad, he didn't want to do that work. And that crucial first relationship with a man that I had, my introduction to the masculine as a little girl was, hi, go away. It wasn't just hi, go away. It was hi, go away because 
I don't like you. There's something wrong with you. That was the messaging that I got over and over again. You're in trouble. I'm screaming at you, right? It was like, I'm scary. There was, it was big, right? And it was this, this original rejection that I tried and tried throughout my life to fix. I tried to get my dad to love me by throwing myself at him over and over again. I tried to get men who reminded me of my dad to love me. I tried to overachieve so that maybe the recognition would make me feel seen and loved. I tried casual sex to feel empowered and badass, but nothing I did shifted anything for me. And I was telling my therapist, I was like, I'm still wrestling with this. I'm still wounded by this hole in my heart and I don't know what to do. And she was like, how old were you when you can first remember feeling that wound? And when I thought about it, I was four. Four was when it got really clear to me that something was wrong. And the first time that I can remember my dad making it clear that I couldn't do anything right and getting really mad at me for just, you know, existing basically. So she asked me, and I talk about this all the time, but I'll be more specific this time since I just had this session. She asked me if I could close my eyes, envision four-year-old me and ask her what adult me could give her that would help with that pain in her heart. And the first thing four-year-old me needed was to be able to cry. She needed someone to witness her pain and to hold her while she was crying. I really didn't realize until that moment how alone I felt in my pain as a little bitty girl. I knew I felt that way as an adolescent, but I didn't realize that I felt that way at such a young age. So I visualized doing that. I held her while she cried, which was wild because I was crying in that moment as adult me, but also as four-year-old me, right? Like as I was visualized holding little me, if that makes sense. Which I guess that does make sense because when we're crying from these old wounds, it's like our inner child is the one crying, even though it's us crying, right? Like that little person is a part of us. So anyway, I was crying. My inner child was crying. And I suddenly had this vision of pouring liquid gold into four-year-old me's chest where there was just this hole in her heart, like filling her back up. And it was such a beautiful, tender healing moment. And my therapist asked me when I kind of came out of this visualization, she kind of asked me, what can you do now as an adult to fill up that hole, like that hole in your heart? What can, what can you do? And I told her, I was like, I need to think about that. And as this week has gone on, I've been thinking about it. And I realized one of the things that fills me up so much is creativity. I love going to dance class. I love um, singing. I love painting. I'm not great at any of these things. I'm fine, but it, it brings me so much deep joy and it fills, it fills me up. It's what I can do to fill myself up. So I think that's such a crucial question too. It's like so much of our pain around being single feels like this hole in our hearts. How can we fill that hole if we're not with someone, right? Because we're not in this moment. So what what can we do? And I also want to say, it's not like you do a visualization once and then ta-da, all your pain is gone, <laughs> right? If only. But what you're doing is slowly mending. It's like 
it's kind of like, like if you hurt your knee and you're going to physical therapy, you don't go to physical therapy just once and then you're, you're good, right? You go multiple times and get a little better each time till you're back up and running. And even then that knee might still need extra care. It might get sore, right? Might get strained. And these wounds are sort of like that. They're not a one and done. They require consistent nurturing. But when we give them that, they do get better. So that's what I have to offer with that rejection wound that comes up with being single. It's so fucking deep. And for me, of course, it's about my grief and loneliness around not having a partner. But even deeper than that is this learned loneliness that I experienced from such a young age, this patterned rejection from my dad that just honestly really never stopped at any point in my life. I just had to make a choice to stop bringing myself to that wound over and over again, right? By, by, by my relationship with him. And that wound is so central to my pain around being single. If I'm not getting to the root of that, then I'm not ever really going to be able to heal it. If I'm frantically looking for someone to come in and try to fill that wound for me through a relationship, I'm not going to get what I really need which doesn't mean I'm not looking for a relationship. It means that it's a both and, right? Like I'm healing on my end and I'm open to partnering. Okay, Felicia, how are you doing over there? (laughs) That was a lot. I'm good. I've been taking some notes as you've been sharing just because, yeah, a lot. I'm just like the different things I'm noticing about what you're sharing, the different themes. And so I'm happy to just like share that or if you want to ask me, your questions. We could whatever oh. is best. Oh, okay. Well, I definitely want to get to the questions, but is there, is there some sort of um, something that you want to remark on? I'm totally interested in hearing that. Well, there were a couple of different things. Um, one thing that I feel like is important in talking about trauma is there's like a really big misconception about traumas. Like sometimes we'll say certain things are traumatic or we'll think of certain types of events as being trauma. Like this Mm. event equals trauma. Mm. That's not actually what trauma is. And I think for your listeners, like that's a really important thing to tease out. Trauma is a specific type of response that the body and the psyche has to an event. What is traumatic for an infant is not necessarily the same thing that is traumatic for an adult. And what's traumatic for one adult is not necessarily going to be traumatic for someone else down the block. And this is, I'm guessing, something you've probably talked about on your podcast before, but I think it's just worth, you know, always saying, because I think sometimes what can happen is something bad can happen in our life, something painful, and we can just say, well, that was traumatic. Mm. And we can almost attach to that idea of it being traumatic, make a bunch of meaning about it. But technically what trauma means is when something occurs and we have um, a reaction in our nervous system where we go into hyper or hypo arousal and we stay stuck in either of those places or we oscillate between them, which also sometimes happens. That's a trauma response. And one of the really incredible things about healing our nervous systems is that we increase our window of tolerance. So for instance, like you were talking about, like, if I don't already have a pre-existing wound that ghosting can activate, I may not actually have a trauma response to someone ghosting me. I may be able to have the ego strength and the internal resilience to 
be aware that that actually says more about the person than it says about me. And I may not spin out and have my nervous system become incredibly dysregulated. And if you're a person who is in that starting place, you can certainly train your nervous system essentially to become more resilient. And like you said earlier, it's probably never going to feel good. You know, (laughs) it's never going to be like, well, bring on more than that or more of that. But it is something that um, can be a little bit easier to bear. Yes. And and I think we're going to kind of get to that and kind of get to that resilience piece, because I think that's where for those of us who are coming into dating already have carrying a bunch of wounds. Yeah. Like, like me sobbing so hard that my sister couldn't understand what I was saying. Obviously I was dysregulated in that moment. And I think for a lot of us who get really triggered, the question is like, how do we get to that place where we feel like, okay, deep breath. This isn't about me. I'm going to, I'm going to call my friend. We're going to open a bottle of wine and like, I'm going to make tonight a good night. Right. Like, But let me start with this before we get ahead of ourselves from a mental health perspective. Why do people ghost? What the fuck? I know this is like what people want to know, but to be honest, I feel like this is like, first of all, if someone's ghosting, like you're not going to find out what's going on with them. Right. Exactly. (laughs) You know? So like, there's nothing we can like really even test it against the desire to know the answer to why do people ghost is almost like we could explain away why this is happening. Mm. And the truth is that people ghost for a bunch of different reasons. People might ghost because they're not that into you. They might ghost because they are scared of their own feelings. They might ghost because generally they don't give a fuck about other people, you know? And one of the things that has been happening more with the advent of online dating is like, you know, historically, We've dated people that we're encountering in our day-to-day lives. People we would have to see again. People we would have to see again. People that might know our family members or our friends or our colleagues or our coworkers. And so there's a little bit more like pressure to not be a dick because you're going to have to deal with like being in community with these people. And so I think there's more of this in the online dating world because there there's no, um, there's no accountability. There's no right. ramifications. Yeah, you might get your feelings hurt and be really upset, but that person's the rest of their social circle doesn't ever have to know that happened. Right. Right. No one has to check and be like, Oh, how'd it go with Remy? Oh, you did that. What the fuck, man? Like no one, like he doesn't have to tell anyone. Right. So I think that's one of the reasons why there's more. And that's not so much like a mental health thing. That's more of like community thing. It has more to do with like the lack of accountability, Um, and the general disconnection, like the ways that we're disconnected from each other now. Wow. Which I, I think the ways that we're disconnected from each other does affect mental health in so many ways, but you're absolutely right. 100%. It does. Yeah. Because I mean, like ghosting does affect, has impacted my mental health, for example, but, but yeah, I mean, you're right though. It's like, we can't be like, because they have avoidant attachment. So right. Like we don't know. It would be so convenient. And the thing is we want to, so something else that I was noticing as you were talking is like, and this is something all humans do. We are meaning making creatures. 
Mm-hmm. We are a whole ball of feelings. I like to say humans are very squishy. We're very like squishy types of animals. We have all these intense feelings. And then we're also quite intelligent and we love narratives. So we're always just like after the fact, assigning meaning to these things. Mm. And so that's the tendency. It's like, well, if I knew why this person ghosted, then it, there's almost this like part of us. It's like, if I could just know then like it would be okay. And it's like, no, because it still hurts. And that's the piece that so often we want to skip over. We want to go into the meaning making. We want to go into the stories rather than attend to our animal bodies without meaning, which is it's so hard for us to do that. But I think it's a big piece of actually learning how to regulate our nervous systems. And what does it look like to do that? So uh, I'm a somatic therapist. So the way I was trained was really to work with the body. So it's very much like aligned with trauma healing. Now, it, it's helpful to have understanding. But from my perspective, if you're wigging out, if you're dysregulated in your nervous system, we need to attend to that before we can get into narrative. Uh, we need to help regulate your nervous system. So I mentioned earlier being hypo or hyper aroused. Hypo means your nervous system is basically tanked, having a freeze response, numb. Um, it can feel like sort of depressive, but it's even it's more numb than even depressive. It's sort of like when you if you have one of those days where you're like your body feels heavy, you just don't want to move, like just nothing. You just want to like stop existing, basically. It's beyond like depression or suicide. It's just like, blah. Mm-hmm. And then you have hyper arousal. So that's kind of like the anxious state of like, you know, and I've, I've done this too, when you're like texting a person over and over again, and you're like, I've got to go to their house. I've got to figure this out. And they kind of like panicked, like, I feel like I'm going to explode mm-hmm. if something doesn't change. So that would be like hyper arousal. And so basically in, in hyper arousal, your system is very energetic, And so some tools for shifting out of that would be to move your body because you're having this big adrenaline increases. And so a great activity would be to like jump around a little bit, shake, make some noises, go for a run and not while you're doing those things, don't try to figure it out. That's the thing because that's what's happening. That's part of what's keeping the spinning going is your brain just keeps on trying to figure it out, find the solution, make sense of it, which just is keeping your system up. So go do something in your body, move it around. For hypoarousal, sometimes it can be somewhat similar. You kind of need to wake the body up. Mm. So I like to start with maybe like putting some pressure on my body, kind of squeezing my legs, squeezing my arms. I'm sitting down, standing up, kind of moving my body around. Another strategy for both of these states is turning your head and looking around your environment. This is kind of like a hacking our nervous system. So something that happens in both states. Now I'm nerding out. I hope this is okay. <laughs> I love I love the nerd out. Yes, please. Okay. So something that happens when you're in either state is if you're in hyperarousal, you're getting barely really really focused. Uh, in both of these states, like the basic message is I don't feel safe. I don't feel safe in my body right now. And what do we do when we don't feel safe? We're either like freezing and kind of trying to like play dead. So we're not really moving much or we're in like fight or flight and we're trying to get away. So we're kind of like laser focused on like, okay, how do I move through my environment? 
in neither of those situations would it be natural for us to kind of like slowly look around and take in the scenery because our animal body is saying like, my environment is unsafe. Mm. So because that is something that our bodies and our nervous systems are disinclined to do, if we make the conscious decision and then actually do the behavior of looking around, it can help regulate our nervous system. So it can help kind of, it works backwards, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yes. That is activating that like calming down mechanism. Yeah. That's amazing. I love these hacks because these are the actually, I have Mars and Capricorn. So I'm like, give me a list of things to do. (laughs) These are things you can do. What do I do? Yeah. I love that. That is so helpful. Thank you. Let me ask you this for a lot of us, especially those of us with anxious attachment, which is a lot of my listeners, ghosting is so painful. If we've been ghosted, how do we take care of ourselves? I would say first things first is like, stop trying to make sense of it. Yeah. That is not helpful. I would, I would say this with my therapy clients when someone would be kind of spinning out and I I could tell, and I, hell, I've done it too. Still do it sometimes. Get all kind of like crazy eyed. Someone's just trying to figure it out and you're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like that's not going to work right now. Like you're too close. You're too, you're too freaked out. We're not going to get anywhere. Mm. The funny thing is like when we're activated, like literally our higher order brain functioning turns off. Mm. Like it like literally stops working, but we still form thoughts. We're still like, we still have the impulse and we still have the ability to form thoughts, but it's we, and we think we're being logical. So it's like, have you seen like, what is it? Minority report where there's like, they're dudes like moving all the screens like the big computer yeah we're like trying to like figure out piece all these things together and we're like haha i've cracked the code like and that's not what's really happening like your brain is not functioning on an optimum level basically you are down to lizard brain status Mm. but you still think you're a full-blown human (laughs) you know what i mean so like your brain is literally acting like a lizard brain right And that's not hyperbole. Like that is what is going on. So like you need to understand that like you cannot figure this out. This is not the time. You are not firing on all cylinders. You need to calm the fuck down. And that's frustrating to hear because it's like, well, if I could calm the fuck down, I would calm the fuck down. But it's like, no, because your strategy for calming the fuck down is to try and figure this out. Mm -hmm. That's not helping. So I'd say the first thing to do is check in with your nervous system. Where are you? This is something with my clients. I would teach every single person first or second session. I would be like drawing this image and explaining how the nervous system works. And my clients over time would learn to tune in and notice where am I? Am I regulated? Am I within my window of tolerance? Am I feeling more hypo aroused right now? Am I feeling more hyper aroused? They would learn how to become aware of that. And so you can train yourself to do this. And the more you do it, the more you'll build the awareness to be able to notice it. And the more likely you'll be able to do it during times when you are activated. So right now, like for people, for yourself and for people who are listening, I would say just like take a moment to feel into your body and notice what is the energetic arousal level in your body. And that's the term that we'll sometimes use arousal level. It's not talking about sexual arousal at this point. It's talking about like the level of energy and activation in the system. 
And when we're regulated, that generally, what's generally happening is like, I can make eye contact. I feel safe enough to look around my environment. Uh, I'm not feeling the impulse to like, I'm not like zoning out or kind of like numbing out. I'm feeling present. I'm feeling engaged. There's a sense of like, even as I'm talking this, I'm almost feeling myself get more regulated, like a little bit calmer. Mm -hmm. So I think that's helpful for people to learn that ability just to track and then begin to develop these skills to learn how to move our bodies and our nervous systems through these states. So I'd say like that is the very, very first thing. And what I also want to say is that for those of us who are anxiously attached, this doesn't just apply I mean, this probably applies to many things outside of dating, but within the dating sphere, it doesn't just apply to being ghosted. Like if, if you don't know where you stand with someone, if you're waiting for the text, you know, like all of these things that activate us and like arouse our essential, like I know one time this was years ago, but one time I was waiting for a text back from a dude. It took him four hours, which is not that long when you think about it, but normally he would text back right away. And I was sobbing by the time that text came through. I was so anxious. That would have been a great moment for me to go on a run, look around my room, like do these things. So it can apply to so many things. So thank you so, so, so much. Let me ask you this. I mentioned this before, but I I had a listener write in and say that she has lots of shame around how long she's been single. How do we work with that shame? Yeah. So I relate a lot to this question and this experience because I was also single for a very long time too. And not only that, but I had friends who would say like, I don't get it. You're so great. Which like, doesn't help exactly. It's like, yeah, I also do not get it. (laughs) Right. Man, if I had a dollar for every time someone said that, yeah. You're just like, thanks, but not thanks. Um, So I would say like, one, just to recognize, like, there is a lot of pressure on us to be partnered. You know, there's um, similarly to like the expectation for women to become mothers. It's just like, this is just kind of the water we swim in. We are kind of taught to believe that partnership is just inherently better. Mm. And like, I think hey, just separating that out can be helpful to begin. Like you can still genuinely want to have a partner, but I think it's helpful for us to start to believe that like we can have joyful, fulfilled lives when we're single. Like I think the the feeling we can have is almost like we're waiting, almost like our lives aren't going to start until we have a partner. And I remember years ago just wanting, being like, oh, I really want to travel, but like I can't find, you know, I don't want to travel by myself, but I really want to go to these places. And I had done solo traveling before, but there was the sense of almost like I was waiting to be coupled till I could do these things. And in part, because I was afraid to be somewhere by myself and be sad and lonely, you know, like what, what happens if I go to this cool place and I'm just there on my own. Right. And I remember talking to a friend about that and she was like, yeah, you know, I felt the same way too. And you know what? I just started doing it anyway. And I, and I basically accepted ahead of time that, yeah, there are probably going to be moments when I do feel sad and lonely, but like, am I going to not do the things that I love and bring me joy just because there's a chance that could happen. Like, like when you think about it that way, it's like, why am I doing that to myself? So I think, you know, in terms of shame and in terms of like enjoying your life while you're single, it's like, don't, don't wait. Your life is not on hold. And that is so often like what's behind the shame. Mm, Yeah. I relate to that really hard. And thank you so much for bringing in your personal experience because 
I definitely feel that sense of waiting. I know what you're talking about. Yeah. Okay. I've dated and had semi-serious situations, but I've never had a bona fide partner as an adult, which I mentioned at the top. It's been this way for so long that I start thinking it's never going to change. Recently, I noticed that I'm terrified of being hopeful about finding a partner because I don't want to be disappointed again. And it almost feels safer to assume I'll just always be single. How do we stay optimistic? Right? Like, how do we stay open hearted after enduring so many years of romantic heartbreak? Also something that I grappled with for a long time too. And I think what made the biggest change for me is I started to try to be playful with it. Mm. Uh, So something I did, I used to feel really weird about falling in love. I thought, I remember being like a 16 year old and I, I had my first boyfriend and he said he loved me all the time and I never said it back. And I remember like asking my friends, like, what is love? My other 16 year old friends, what is love? Like, how do you know when you're in love? And like, no one could give me a satisfying answer. It's like, this is bullshit. I don't know what it is. Love is dumb. I don't understand romance. So I also had that coming into it where I was like, this is just dumb. I was also like raised in the church, grew up without my dad. My mom didn't do a lot of dating. So there was like both like purity culture stuff going on, not having role models for this and like being tomboyish and sort of like, I'm not into pink or romance. Mm. (laughs) So there was like a lot of stuff going on, but, um, in, in more recent years, something that I started doing was like pretending to fall in love. And I would play this game where I would be walking down the street and I would see someone who I thought was attractive. And I would just see what it felt like in myself to imagine that I was in love with them. Not in like a weird, that sounds like potentially weird and stalkery. (laughs) Um, But like, it was just just for me to feel like, can I access that feeling or can I experiment with that feeling or can I play with it? Can I see what that feels like in my body? What would it be like for me to feel warmth towards this person that I think is attractive or I think is interesting in some way? And I I have this really, really distinct memory of seeing this guy down the street um, and just looking at him being like, oh, what if that was the person I was in love with? Just like going about their day walking around and like letting myself feel warmth. And it was, you know, no strings attached. This person didn't know I was like doing this experiment. I never approached them. You know, I didn't like linger on it. Never went to try to find them afterwards. It was just like a low stakes way for me to begin to feel that feeling. And I think that's part of moving ourselves towards love is inclining our bodies, inclining our spirits, inclining our hearts towards those experiences and actually creating the scenario for them rather than expecting it to only happen if, if all of these other little things are in place. And it's absolutely perfect. Because the thing is, if you've experienced a lot of heartbreak or trauma, or you feel anxious in, if you're anxiously attached, whatever those things may be, we can go in with so much pressure on our dating experiences. And you mentioned earlier, like he didn't text for four hours and he normally texts for one. And like, you were immediately aware of that pattern. It was like, something's wrong. Right. And it's, that's hard. That's a hard thing for the people who are in relationships with us to deal with Totally. when it's like, we're so fucking on edge all the time. Right. Right. So we also need to learn how to soften 
and take the pressure off other people. And that's hard to do because, oh God, that's right. I had this conversation with an astrologer years back. Oh my God. I'm so glad I'm remembering this. This is super relevant. This was probably about like five, six years ago now, maybe a little more. And he was telling me that I had a part in me that was really, really, really good at noticing what was wrong, like really good at finding problems. And that was like good in my career as a therapist. Like I was really, I had a lot of clarity. I was able to see like, what is off here? He was like, for your romantic relationships, this is not so great because you tend to be pretty hard on people. And then people feel like they're not, uh, they're not great. Like they, they, they feel criticized. They feel bad about themselves and they eventually don't want to be in that relationship anymore. Mm. And I remember saying to him, like, but I, how, what if I like stay in a relationship that I'm not supposed to be in because I'm like trying not to be critical. Like I, what about like me needing to protect myself? What if I get hurt? What if something really bad happens because I'm just trying to not be critical? And he was like, your protector is different than this part. And my mind was blown. Wow. Cause what I was fearful of is like, if I'm not hyper aware and protecting, you know, making sure everything's right all the time, nipping these things in the bud, like what's going on. It took you four hours or normally takes an hour, like doing, you know, and like doing all of that, then I'm going to get really, really hurt and something bad is going to happen. But when he said like, no, your protector part is different. That can remain intact while this other part learns how to relax and gets to heal. Mm. And I was like, oh, well that changes everything. If I know I'm not going to just like die, if I don't like keep this guy in check, then maybe I'll enjoy my relationships a little bit more and people will have a better experience with me too. I love that. And I think it's so important that you brought that piece in because it's such a different perspective than mine or experience, I should say. Um, and I think there are probably a lot of people who relate to it. My experience was I have blinders on and I don't, I, if I, if there's something I don't like, I ignore it because I don't want it to be real. So hearing this other experience is so valuable and there's, and I, and I love either way. It's like, for example, that time when I was like sobbing because it had been four hours, I never told him that I never, I was, I was ashamed I was like, there's something wrong with me. I think I literally like the next day went to a love addicts anonymous meeting. <laughs> so I was like, what the fuck is going on with me? Um, but I think like both of these experiences are so important to creating like this bigger picture of what people experience in dating and how we, the different ways we protect ourselves. You would protect yourself by this hypervigilance piece. I would protect myself by pretending that nothing was wrong. <laughs> Okay, let me let me ask this last question. One thing I struggle with dating is that I'm I'm coming in with anxious attachment, betrayal, you know, cheating experiences, zero family model of healthy relationships. I've done tons of healing work, but I'm complicated. <laughs> I think part of what turns me off about dating is that it's supposed to be fun and lighthearted, but the nature of it is so triggering for someone like me and I don't want to be disingenuous about that. How do we stay emotionally authentic in dating while also not making it a huge fucking bummer? That That is a tricky one. And I also relate to this question. Well, one, I think 
the lightheartedness, maybe like that exercise, if that resonates with you is something you could try, your listeners could try, because again, it's very low stakes, like the other person who (laughs) doesn't have to like be involved. So that can be a nice way to get to start to experience some lightheartedness in that area of your life. And I would say the, in terms of like, well, when you're actually dating a person and you're very tenderhearted and you're prone to like feeling hurt, then I would say the the one thing that I learned how to do is to say what I wanted, ask for what I wanted, rather than telling the other person what I didn't like. So this happened for me. I was dating. So the person I'm dating now was my downstairs neighbor. Um, and now he's my upstairs neighbor. Now we live together. But <laughs> I remember like yeah. early on, he was in a game that he didn't know he was a part of, meaning like We hadn't like texted for a little bit. And then I was like, it's cool. I'm cool. I'm fine. Like I'm chilling. I can handle this. Like, look at me. I'm so like proud of myself. I'm like, I'm not freaking out. This is amazing. I'm growing. I'm healing. And then like a few more hours passed. And then it was like the next day. It's kind of similar to yours. It's like, I still hadn't heard from him. And I was, then I started to get activated. I was like frustrated with myself because I was like, God damn it. Like I was doing so good. And then I was like, well, wait, why isn't he texting me? Like, do I always text him? I was like, you know, doing the minority report thing where I'm like moving all the computer stuffs around and like right. trying to like figure out what's happening. And I remember like talking to my coach and being like, I don't know what to do. Like, this isn't okay. Like, should I tell him that like, I need to, like, he needs to text me more often. What do I do? How do I resolve this? Like, cause I'm not okay with it being this way. And I'm clearly like, I clearly want it to be different. And she was like, okay, well, it sounds like you like him. And what I'm really hearing is like the vulnerable piece of this is, do you like me? Do you still think I'm fun to be around? Can you just remind me of that? Can you reassure me? And I was like, that is so crazy. That is crazy vulnerable. That sounds awful to just say like, I'm feeling insecure. Can you please reassure me? I would much rather tell him, hey, you need to text me more frequently because that's not very like emotionally vulnerable. It's just like, this is the behavior that I need to change. And like, it's very direct and like, it's easy. And I remember being like, Kim, you're crazy, but fine. And I remember like standing, I walked downstairs and I like must've knocked on his door and like, he came out of his door and I was standing outside of my door and I was just like, Hey, I know we haven't talked in like a day. And, um, I was just, I was like, I can't even, it's hard for me to even say right now, like, and I don't even remember what I said, but it must've been something to the effect of like, do you still like me? Do you want to spend time with me? And he was like, yeah, (laughs) what are you talking? Yeah, of course. And I am fully confident that that happened in, that was so much more productive than me being like, Hey, why didn't you text me? Right. I want you to text me more frequently and him being like, oh shit, I like didn't even realize I was doing something wrong. And in this way, it was like, I was vulnerable. And he was like, oh yeah, I like you. I was just doing this other thing. Instead of like presenting the information that would have been much more likely to put him on the defense. So I think that's very hard for folks who have been hurt. I have been hurt too. I don't want to be vulnerable in these situations. It's so much easier to just uh, be more critical And I think sometimes it's like so easy to be like, well, no, I'm just asking him, asking for what I want. I'm just telling him what I want. It's like, yeah, but in a way that is making it very clear that he fucked up. Mm. 
And it's it's not as if like men are have such fragile egos and we have to protect them. This is like basic human communication stuff. Like people, it's like, you know, say you're more likely to catch flies with honey than with vinegar. It's like, yeah, if what you want is this outcome, what is the best way for you to get that outcome? If you want someone to respond with you with tenderness, if you come at them with a dagger, that's just less likely to occur. So if you're feeling tender, like show that you're tender. And yeah, you are going to encounter some people who are going to see that and be like, ah, you're weird. I'm out of here. I hate vulnerability too. And then that's great information. Now, you know, right. But you'll never know if someone's like able to access that. If you like approach someone with a need that's actually while you're like holding a bat. Right. Yeah. Well, I cannot tell you how hard I relate to, and I've always thought of myself as a really, you know, squishy, vulnerable. I, I wore pink a ton growing up. I was like, I was like all about romance and whatever, but that piece of like, I need to tell you when I don't feel secure about how you feel about me, I need to tell you how I feel about you that like, I need your reassurance because I really like you. And I, and I'm curious if you really like me and you want to, Oh my God. Oh my God. The overwhelming fear. Oh, so yes. Thank you for that. Because I think that is some, it, we do go into this like defensive, you fucked up thing when, yeah, if we come in and say like, Hey, I haven't heard from you. Uh, are you still into this? Like, it's so, it's so inviting. Instead of, I haven't heard from you. Why didn't I hear from you? What's going on? Like, explain yourself. Right. What's going on? It's like, that is like, that feels shitty. Yeah. Like even just like saying that out loud, imagining receiving that and be like, I'm I like a part of me almost wants to be like, wait, what the fuck? Like who, who, who the hell do you think you are to like come in here, like demanding me explain myself. Whereas if someone's like, Hey, I really like you. And I, you know, haven't heard from you. And so a part of me was worried that maybe you didn't want to spend time with me. It's like, oh, then my heart softens. And I'm like, oh, you're, you're scared and you're hurting. Okay. I can see that. That's really clear to me. But when someone's coming in and they're like, why didn't you text me? I'm like, oh, you're angry. And I'm like feeling like I need to protect myself. Right. Yeah. It's totally such a shift. Felicia, this conversation has been so wonderful. I have loved talking to you and you've brought in so many different pieces. It's it's just been great. If people want to get a hold of you, how can they reach you? Yeah. So I'm on the internet as the bad therapist. So it's the underscore bad underscore therapist. Uh, these days, I am not seeing therapy clients. I am a business coach helping therapists and other coaches build their practices and expand into scalable offers. Um, it is so much fun to have an opportunity to talk more about like the mental health and therapy world. But these days, um, I'm helping the helpers, which is very rewarding. It's such a nice way to like use all my experience and skills with um, a different group of people who obviously like also really need the help. Yeah, totally. Big time. Awesome. And if you want to get a hold of me, you can find me on Insta at the Patrama Party or on my personal Insta at Remy's, R-E-M-E-E-Z. You can also email me at patramaparty at gmail.com. If you have a topic you'd like to hear covered, definitely hit me up. Also, if you want to join the Patrama Party community, you can find us on Facebook. It's such a cool group of listeners. We check in with each other about the stuff we're going through and offer support and resources. So if you're into that, just search the Patrama Party and I'll add you. Speaking of support, if this pod has helped you and you have a minute, 
rate, review, subscribe. It really does help. And I read all of the reviews. And if you'd like to support the pod, you can now. You can give a dollar a month, $5. I pour myself into this podcast. I put so much time and energy into it. So if you're able and moved to just go to anchor.fm forward slash the Patrama party and scroll down to the support button. You can also find the support option on Spotify. And until next time, baby, enjoy the party. 